Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast. Taking a look inside your genes. Every biology student is familiar with DNA, the ladder-like blueprint of life built on a backbone of the sugar deoxyribose. Scientists are now hacking this structure to make entirely new DNA-like molecules, opening an exciting new world of synthetic genetics. If you think of the Rosetta Stone, where you have uh, the same message rendered in three different scripts, it's the same, the message is the same, it's just the writing is different, and really that's what we're trying to do. Plus, we find out what happens when music has sex, discover why the X chromosome is more than just a number, and our gene of the month is the unfortunate Ken and Barbie. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for July 2012 with me, Dr. Katani, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Most of us will be familiar with the structure of DNA, the twisted ladder that encodes the blueprint of life. The rungs of the ladder are made up from pairs of chemicals called bases, adenine, thymine, guanine and cytosine, usually denoted by the initials A, T, G and C respectively. These are the letters used to write the instructions in our genes. The sides of the ladder are made from ring-shaped sugars, deoxyribose in the case of DNA and ribose in RNA, a related molecule. These two molecules, DNA and RNA, are the genetic basis for all life as we know it, from the tiniest virus particles to our own bodies. I went to the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology to speak to Dr Phil Holliger, who's taking these familiar molecules into exciting new territory, switching the deoxyribose part of the DNA ladder for entirely different sugars. We're trying to change the type of media, if you want, in in which one could write it. If If you think of the Rosetta Stone where you have uh, the same message rendered in three different scripts. It's the same, the message is the same, it's just the writing is different, and really that's what we're trying to do. By building different scaffolds on which the, um, on which the letters, the code, can be mounted on, if you want. So we replaced the ribofuranose with a, with a whole range of different uh, chemical structures, six-membered rings, five-membered rings, interlocked rings, and we've, we've been able to show that these alternative scaffolds retain the ability to display the code in a readable form. So really that basic function of storing uh, and propagating genetic information is, is, is not unique to, to DNA and RNA, and that is a profound result that tells us a lot about, uh, I guess, both the chemical basis of life on Earth and potentially you know, elsewhere in the universe. So life for millions of years on this planet has been built on this structure of, of deoxyribose, DNA, mm-hmm. sugars and, yeah. and RNA. And you're saying that you can make basically ladders of information based on different sugars. 
Is there any particular reason that evolution selected DNA and RNA and didn't select these other sugars? We, we obviously have not tested out these other scaffolds to quite the same degree as life has tested out DNA and RNA. But what one can say uh, with some certainty now is that the very basic functions of, of encoding storing and propagating genetic information are not unique to DNA and RNA. And I think the sort of inescapable conclusion is that life chose DNA and RNA not for fundamental functional reasons, but presumably, you know, for opportunistic reasons. So they are, they represent, if you want, a, a frozen accident from the origin of life. RNA at the time was around, did the job, and that's what life got started with. And once, once you've made that choice... Um, you know, you stick with it. There is no reason to change. It's a bit like VHS and Betamax or, or Blu-ray and, and mm-hmm. HD DVD. You know, people just go with one and that becomes the main one. Yeah, to some degree, to some degree. Obviously, it, the current thinking is that life really got started on RNA and as the genomes grew bigger, uh, RNA was slightly too unstable for the job. So life moved on to DNA for, the, for storing information but retained RNA for, for many of its other functions. So that's, that's really how far life got. And there was, ever, there was never any need to go any further than that. But it could have started potentially on some, some other backbone. What do you think are some of the applications for these new types of sugar-based uh, codes that you're developing? There's a class of, of single-stranded nucleic uh, uh, drugs made from DNA and from RNA called aptamers. And, and really these have the potential to rival things like antibodies, at least in some clinical settings. But I think one of the reasons they really haven't had uh, such, uh, such success in the clinic so far is that the, the DNA and RNA are very much degradable, degradable and degraded by the body. So they, they generally need to be modified to have a chance to, to work as therapeutics, and that really uh, drives up the cost, uh, lengthens, the de- lengthens the development process and, and, and makes them, um, you know, in some cases also compromises their actual functionality. So one of the advantages of these new backbones is that they're very, very, they're very, very hardy. I mean, the, some of the ones we've worked with, they essentially can't be degraded uh, in the body, and they're also very, very chemically inert. They're, for example, very stable to sort of acidic conditions that you might encounter in the stomach. The, the, the hope is that we can build uh, much more resilient therapeutics um, and potentially also diagnostics and you know, other structures from these, from these backbones that will have a whole range of utilities. But if these, these are basically a, a life code and they can't be degraded, they can't be broken down, are there risks of putting something like that out in the environment? Well, if I say they can't be degraded, I think they can't be degraded within the sort of use, useful lifespan that you would uh, think of a therapeutic. I think everything would eventually be degraded and excreted by the body. But, you know, rather than being degraded within an hour of, of entering the bloodstream, you know, these, uh, I would expect them to last for days, weeks, uh, possibly months. So not some kind of rogue code that's going to take over your body. As I said, it, there's no, there's nothing rogue about it. I mean, it's 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 really the code has not been changed. It is really just the the scaffolding that has been modified. That was Dr. Phil Holliger from the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology. <laughs> 
Still to come, we'll be answering your genetics questions, including wondering about the naming of our X and Y chromosomes. But first, it's time to take a look at the top stories from this month with science writer Nell Barry. So, what have you got for us this month, Nell? The first one that we thought was exciting was a really interesting study looking at the evolution of music. And this was published in PNAS and it was led by Robert McCallum and Armand Leroy, who I hope I pronounced his name right. Le Roy. Le Roy. Something like that. Oui. From Imperial College. And what they've done is essentially they've got some random sections of... I guess you wouldn't even call it music, just notes, random notes put together. And they're getting people to select them on the basis of what they like to hear, what sounds the most pleasant. And then they're getting these little selected bits of music to mate together and make babies and make new music by just randomly combining bits in the tune. And they're going to see if that can lead to music evolving over time, which is very interesting. So we can listen to a bit of this. So uh, we've got some of the tracks, the Darwin tunes, as they're called. So here's the first track, Generation Zero. So these are just randomly generated noises. And here we have them after about 400 generations. And now here after about 1,200 generations. Quite like the sound of this one. Finally, after about five and a half thousand generations, so these, these are really quite long and developed now. Do you think this is really natural selection and evolution, though? I think it's a really interesting model, I guess, but it's not really the way that natural selection and evolution works with animals and organisms because you're basing the selection on one very specific criteria which is whether the particular person listening to it actually likes it and in reality if you're looking at an animal in its environment there's all kinds of other things that will act to select whether it's fit for that environment or not I suppose and also this isn't really over a long period of time because you'd normally look at how the environment changes over time what does that do to the organisms within it exactly it's a very split second thing you know do it do I like this do I not I think quite interestingly they're all very major they're quite bland really (laughs) if this is the future of music i'm not sure about this no it definitely sounds kind of like something out of pac-man maybe and i mean i like it from that point of view and it does sound like real music i suppose but it's not yeah it's not going to set the world on fire anytime soon no something that may well set something on fire is a story that i saw in the journal of neuroscience and this is from marco bortolato at the university of southern california and this is looking at the genetics of rage. This is an absolutely fascinating story. What have the researchers been up to here? Yeah, I really like this one because I can definitely identify with, you know, extreme rage at some points in but my life. But you look so calm and peaceful all the time. No, no, I definitely, well, look, I definitely have that feeling occasionally where you just kind of snap and you get really mad. And perhaps this is telling us a little bit about what might be happening in the brain, especially people perhaps who have a real problem with controlling their rage and just can't, can't manage to control it at all. They're looking at a specific receptor which they think might be malfunctioning and over-functioning perhaps in people who are very hostile and they've looked in mice. So this is really early stage stuff but they found this receptor is faulty in mice that are very, very hostile and they think that this could have something to do with the same process in humans perhaps. So maybe there could be a way we could fix the function of that receptor, return it to normal 
And could that help us treat people who have real rage problems, maybe? You know, we're not talking about people who, you know, like you, just get, get a bit <laughs> no, of a strop on. It's not just getting a little angry. It's more like kind of serious problem with rage, isn't it? The other thing that struck me reading this is it's one of those studies where you're looking at a tiny part of what the brain does. And it's really interesting and it's telling you something, but it really needs to be part of the whole thing. And when you're looking at things like behaviour it's usually not as simple as switching one thing on and off and switching that behaviour on and off because there's so many different aspects to it. And they talk about risk factors as well. So the way you're brought up, the kind of environment you live in when you're a child has a big effect on the type of rage response you might have to things. So that's really got to be taken into account as well. So it is really early days. But it's interesting to see how these things are similar in mice and humans always, I think. I'd love to see a mouse with rage. You can see videos of angry rats on the internet that I've seen. They've, they've done some like selective breeding. You get really, really angry rats that just attack people just on site. Oh, I love yeah. More than angry birds who just attack pigs. The final story that we've got is a really nice paper published in Science. This is from Jennifer Doudner at University of California, Berkeley. And I, I love this just because of the, the potential of this story. And this is researchers who've been looking at bacteria and looking at how bacteria use certain molecules like molecular scissors to snip up their DNA and glue it together and helps them develop uh, different characteristics to help them survive. But they've actually looked at these, these molecular scissors and found out how they work and they think that possibly you could use this technology to make programmable scissors so you could cut up uh, human DNA, animal DNA and basically glue it back together in any kind of way you like. That's pretty cool. I mean, I think it's kind of what I think of as genetic engineering. I guess you think, oh, you'll just put together whichever bit of the DNA that you want. But actually, in reality, that's not really possible yet. So I suppose this is taking us a little bit closer to real designer genetic tailoring or whatever you might like to call it. So I remember when I I was in the lab, and this was some time ago now, so things may have changed. But if you wanted to do genetic engineering and stick different bits of DNA together, you had to look at the sequence, and there were only certain sequences that you could cut using enzymes. Um, things have probably moved on now, but I think there is some restriction in the sequences that you can cut and glue together. So having a different set of technology could, could really be exciting. Yeah, and I guess the sort of eventual implications of that would be that you could create these kind of designer organisms like maybe bacteria that degrade nasty environmental toxins or produce things that we need for drugs or all kinds of exciting applications because we know that bacteria and fungi have all these abilities and it's just about could we harness them to do the things we want I guess. Watch this space I think because it is still very early days for that but uh, thank you very much that's Nell Barry science writer and now here's our roundup of the rest of this month's genetics news. An international team of scientists have discovered a new gene in the flu virus, despite it being 30 years since the flu genome was first decoded. Writing in the journal Science, the researchers found the gene by analysing patterns of genetic change in thousands of different flu strains, including the notorious 1918 Spanish flu. The new gene, called PAX, helps to control how the body responds to the virus by damping down the immune response to infection. The discovery is surprising not only because the flu virus has just 12 genes, so finding a new one is a big deal, but also that PAX seems to reduce the impact of viral infection rather than enhance it. The gene was discovered lurking inside another gene and is only read or transcribed due to occasional slips in the cellular protein-making machinery, which is why it had evaded detection for so long. The scientists think their finding will help to shed light on why different strains of flu cause more or less severe infections and could pave the way for future antiviral treatments. 
New research led by Jordi Garcia Fernandez and Manuel Iremir at the University of Barcelona and published in the journal Nature Scientific Reports suggests that genetic cut and pasting could have been the driving factor behind the origin of vertebrate limbs. The scientists compared the hedgehog gene in simple invertebrate fish-like creatures called Amphioxus with the version in zebrafish, which are vertebrates because they have a bony spine. The team discovered that an event called chromosomal translocation, where two bits of DNA in the genome get accidentally cut and pasted next to each other, led to the vertebrate version of the hedgehog gene, that sonic hedgehog, being switched on in a new part of the body, which eventually evolved to become the limbs. Hot on the heels of last month's announcement of the full sequence of the tomato genome, plant researchers at the University of California, Davis, have discovered a genetic tweak that could make bland supermarket tomatoes taste more like classic heirloom varieties. Publishing in the journal Science, Anne Powell and her team searched for transcription factors, these are proteins that switch genes on and off, that are involved in controlling quality and colour as tomatoes ripen. The team focused their attention on tomatoes that are unusually dark green before ripening and discovered that these plants carried a particular version of a gene called GLK2. The gene is involved in the development of chloroplasts, the tiny power stations inside plant cells that convert sunlight energy into food. Tomatoes carrying this genetic variation have higher levels of sugars and other naturally occurring chemicals, making them tastier as well as healthier. You're listening to the Naked Genetics Podcast with me, Dr Katani. Still to come, we'll be finding out why the X and Y chromosomes are more than just a number. But first, we've already heard about the scientists working on the frontiers of DNA, but others are taking things further still, hacking the machinery inside our cells that translates the information encoded in our DNA into proteins to create strange new molecules previously unknown in nature. Leading this charge into the unknown is Dr Jason Chin and his team, also at the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology. He's using genetic engineering to create modified ribosomes, the molecular factories in our cells that put together chemical building blocks called amino acids, to make proteins. We've been interested in making a new version of the translational machinery that allows you to uh, put together, uh, assemble new proteins composed of new amino acids. And the way we've thought about doing this is really uh, to think about building, if we think about the translational machinery that normally makes proteins as being like a factory that essentially assembles a series of beads onto a a string with the beads being amino acids and you want to put them onto the the string or the necklace in a defined sequence, Uh, what we've been able to do is to really think about building within the cell um, a new factory that allows us to build uh, entirely new types of necklaces with with new uh, with new types of beads, um, and so at the molecular level that involves creating a new version of the ribosome itself and a new and new amino acid tRNA synthetases and tRNAs that can recognize new amino acids and put those new amino acids onto tRNAs. This seems like quite a challenging thing to do. I mean, some of the molecules you're talking about are quite small, but ribosomes are enormous. How do you go about rebuilding a ribosome? To give you an idea of the scale, I mean, these are macromolecules in the cell, so these are, these are um, molecules that are on the nanometer scale. So it's true that a ribosome is large relative to an atom or relative to a small molecule, but it's still small relative to a person or relative to a cell. And so what you have to do to engineer these components of the cell 
is to really use the ability to engineer the genes that the cell uses to make those molecules. So in the case of creating a new uh, version of the ribosome, what we've been able to do is to create versions of the genes that the host cell machinery uses to then assemble ribosomes, but to put in new versions of those genes such and then to use the cell itself to assemble new versions of the ribosome, uh, versions of the ribosome that, that, that we would like the cell to be able to build. So what could be some of the applications of these new proteins that you could make? So there's a variety of things that we're actively pursuing in terms of making uh, new proteins on this, these new versions of the translational machinery. One broad class of problem we're interested in is being able to put new designer amino acids into proteins that uh, don't naturally exist in biology but have uh, different uh, properties that allow us to report actually on what a protein that contains these amino acids is actually doing in the cell. So, uh, for example, we've been able to make um, amino acids that uh, we can put into proteins in the cell that when you shine light on them, they then actually... Uh, form an irreversible chemical bond between the protein and any protein that that protein's in in the neighborhood of. And that allows you to find out uh, at the level of basic biology who they actually uh, socialize with and talk to in the cell. And that's um, been important for understanding at a very basic level uh, what proteins are doing in the cells and what what their functions might actually be and how they change shape and who they talk to as a function of the state of the cell. That was Jason Chin from the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology. Moving even further up the scale, we turn now to the field of experimental evolution. At the University of Reading, Dr Tiffany Taylor and her colleagues are busy manipulating bacteria and putting them through their paces to see how they evolve in the face of considerable challenges. I am an evolutionary biologist and I'm interested in experimental evolution. So what that allows you to do is it allows you to, um, using microorganisms or fast replicating organisms, it allows you to follow evolutionary processes happening in real time. Because normally when you think about evolution, you think about millions of years, populations, stuff takes a long time. Give us an example of how many generations you can get through in what sort of time scale. Well, that's the fantastic thing about bacteria is that they have a generation time of approximately 20 minutes. So you can get through vast amounts of generations very quickly. um, And the population densities can reach huge scales in a very small space. So you can keep large uh, libraries of all sorts of mutants um, and you can grow them up. And a great thing about it as well is that you can... um, keep these mutants in suspended animation just by freezing them and then this allows you to compete evolved and ancestral strains together and get sorts of measures on uh, like competition and fitness in different environments. Can't even imagine doing that with humans. We dig up some Neanderthals and have a fight with them. Absolutely, yeah. It's essentially what you're doing. It's looking at survival of the fittest um, between, like you say, fossils and, and um, highly evolved species and then letting them compete and fight and seeing who wins. What are you particularly looking into? Well, at the moment, I'm looking at the evolution of the novel genetic code. So what that means is that we're um, getting a bacterial cell, we're changing the code in some way, um, and then seeing how the bacteria can evolve and adapt to this code over time. You're talking about changing the genetic code. Does this mean you're changing the DNA or, or something else? The way that the genetic code is read is in triplets. So the genetic code is made up of different letters, and each three-letter codes um, code for a different amino acid. So, for example... ATG is going to code for a specific amino acid. So if we change what that triplet code codes for, so it codes for a different amino acid, essentially you're forcing um, the bacteria to read its genetic code differently. 
And so you change it and then they have to figure out what on earth to do with it. Exactly. Then all we're going to do is let them uh, evolve over time just by transferring them to new environments and just then go back into the genome and have a look at what mutations have occurred to allow them to adapt to this new code. And you don't really think of bacteria as being much under environmental pressure. What sort of different environmental pressures do you put them under? Um, Well, in the case of this one, the only real environmental pressure we're putting them under is um, that we're linking this trait um, to the production of a certain enzyme which is going to be vital for their survival in the environment because it's going to have such a large um, fitness decrease associated with changing the code. You need to put a selective pressure, which means it's going to maintain this new code within the bacteria. But basically, if they can't evolve a way of getting over this, they're going to die pretty fast. Exactly, yeah. So we'd, we'd, bacteria are very good at overcoming problems. I mean, they've uh, been here since for about three billion years. So I think um, that they probably will find a way. And it is a bit of a, an interesting project in that we really don't know what we expect to see, but I would expect to see changes quite quickly and probably quite inventive changes that we haven't thought of before. And you're looking at uh, bacteria, you're making them go through multiple generations and mutating them. Are they ever going to change into anything other than bacteria? Because when we look at the billions of years of life on Earth, we've seen species gradually evolve into, into different things. Do bacteria, are they going to change into something that's not bacteria? Um, it's not possible in the timescales that we're talking about. I mean, bacteria do replicate very quickly, um, but to see the sorts of changes in the what we call macroevolution scale, to actually see them speciate, um, takes an incredibly long time and much longer than anyone's career. <laughs> Certainly longer than your postdoc. Absolutely. <laughs> that was Tiffany Taylor from the University of Reading. Coming up, we'll be getting to the rather pink and plasticky bottom of the Ken and Barbie gene. But now, here to answer your burning genetics questions is naked scientist Louise Anthony. With me this month is Dr Robin Hesketh from the University of Cambridge. And our first question is from Neil Denham, who asks, why do we use the letters A, C, G and T for DNA? And why are the chromosomes called X and Y? Are they not DNA? Well, hopefully we've already answered the first part of that question. A, C, G, and T are for adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine, the four bases that make up DNA. But Dr. Hesketh, why are the chromosomes called X and Y? Let's just recap for a moment by thinking about human DNA and reminding ourselves that it's in fact divided into 46 different chromosomes. There are 22 pairs, numbered 1 to 22, so that chromosome 1 is the biggest, most base pairs, and chromosomes 22 and uh, 21 are the shortest. And then in addition to them, there are, of course, the two sex chromosomes, designated X and Y. In men, for example, we have an X chromosome and a Y chromosome, and ladies, of course, have two X chromosomes. Now, the X chromosome was named following the general rule of algebra, that the symbol X stands for the unknown quantity. The X is nothing to do with shape. If you recall those chromosome pictures, most of them actually look like wiggly Xs, apart, of course, from the shriveled Y chromosome, and its name just followed on from X. Our second question is from Brian Jacobs, who asks... Is it true that active genes make up only 3% of the DNA in our chromosomes? And if so, what does the other 97% do? Only about 1.5% of the human genome are regions that encode proteins. And the rest of DNA, all the remaining 98.5%, is non-coding. 
genes come in two sorts. The first sort are indeed those that direct the synthesis of protein, and the second sort of gene are those that don't make a protein but have some regulatory function as an RNA molecule. So these are non-coding RNAs, and there's thousands of them in our genome. Now, all these genes, whether protein coding or not, need to be controlled, switched on or off in the jargon. And that's done via non-coding DNA. The major controlling stretch is usually just before the start, just upstream of the gene itself, and that's called a promoter. And then there are sequence motifs that are much more distant from the coding region, and those are called enhancers. But even allowing for RNA molecules that don't make protein still leaves an awful lot of unemployed DNA. Now, some of that comes as telomeres. These are caps that sit on the end of each chromosome. They're repetitive stretches of DNA, and essentially they protect the end of the chromosome from deterioration or indeed from fusion with neighbouring chromosomes. That was Dr Robin Hesketh from the University of Cambridge, and we'll be returning to the mystery of all that non-coding DNA in next month's podcast. If you've got any burning questions about genes, DNA and genetics that you'd like us to answer, just email them to genetics at thenakedscientist.com, tweet us at Naked Genetics, or post on our Facebook page, and we'll do the best to answer them for you. Finally, our gene of the month is Ken and Barbie. Yes, named after the dolls. Like their plastic counterparts, male and female flies with a fault in the Ken and Barbie gene have no external genitals. Their naughty bits start to develop but get stuck inside the body. The Ken and Barbie gene itself encodes the instructions to make a transcriptional repressor. This is a protein that prevents genes from being switched on. Ken, as it's usually known in the trade, sits on genes involved in making a fly's genitals and keeps them switched off until the precise moment they're needed. Luckily for us, there's no human equivalent of Ken and Barbie, although it's distantly related to a gene called BCL6, which is involved in lymphoma. That's all for now. I'll be back again next month finding out how advances in DNA sequencing technology are helping us to understand the secrets within our genome and reveal the role of genes in human disease. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page. That's nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. Don't forget that every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is available via iTunes or online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast has been brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.